A reading from the prophet Jeremiah, the first chapter, beginning at the fourth verse. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue. As was his custom, he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind. He set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. But isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physicians, heal yourselves, and you will tell me. Do, do hear in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I say to you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. When the sky was shut for three and a half years, there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Cyrene. All the people of the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, 
and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he, right, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. The Gospel of the Lord. I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> well, this morning I want to proclaim the good news that so long as we nurture a desire for more of God's kingdom in our lives, and remember that our vision for that kingdom remains incomplete, we can be confident that Jesus will continue guiding us into more of his kingdom truth, enabling us to enter even more of his kingdom life. So long as we nurture a desire for more of God's kingdom in our lives and remain humble that we haven't attained all there is to have of God, not even close, then we can be confident Jesus will continue to lead us, to guide us into more of his kingdom truths so we can enter even more into his kingdom life. Kurt and Emily Retma are a middle-class couple in their early 40s who now have two elementary-age sons. They live in Kansas City, Kansas, not Missouri, Kansas City, Kansas, the other side of the state line, in a low-income neighborhood where they were also living at the time of the financial crisis that began in 2008. And as the housing market crash sent a disproportionate number of black and brown families packing, their neighborhood was hit particularly hard. With a large number of the homes in their neighborhood being rentals, many of their neighbors were losing their homes, either because their landlord's properties were being foreclosed upon or because they themselves could no longer afford the rent because of the financial crisis. Kurt and Emily's hearts went out to these people, their neighbors. From Kurt's perspective, many of these neighbors losing their homes worked just as hard as he did, worked in many cases longer hours than he did. He says they had made just as smart of decisions in the financial circumstances they had as he did with his. As far as Kurt could tell, the only difference between him, who was going to be able to stay in his home, between him and them, the only difference he could tell was that he had capital at a time when their world was crumbling underneath them. and They didn't have the same capital. Capitalism works great for those who have capital. But for those who do not, it can be quite merciless. So Kurt wanted to help. He wanted to help these people. But Kurt knew that renting wasn't going to be the way for these people to build back their wealth, right? No building of equity that way. So what Kurt did was he and some friends from his church began investing the capital that they had. They did have some capital. They began investing that in helping immigrant families purchase 
all the foreclosed homes on his street. Now, mind you, in his neighborhood in 2010-ish, some homes were selling for as cheap as $20,000. I know that to us, especially right now, living in California in these, this current market, that is hard to fathom. But at those prices, his group of investors from his church were able to facilitate the purchase of about a dozen homes that had previously been rental properties by families who'd never owned a home before. So even though Kurt and his investors could have used their own capital to buy up the same properties, hang on to them for a few years, and then make, what, three, four times what they paid for them when the market went back up, even though they could have done that, they settled instead for making less than 10% profit off the capital they invested, helping these low-income folks become new homeowners. But Kurt reports that the fruit of his decision to do this has made it all worth it. Not just for these dozen families, but for Kurt's family as well. For these families, Kurt says that his neighbor's monthly payments were cut in half from their rent. Of course, that money was going toward equity. Because they were gaining equity, they started building wealth. Kurt estimates that 10 years later, these dozen families had accrued about $1.75 million in wealth between them, right? Divide it by 12. That's a lot, a lot more than they'd have built the other way. (laughs) Also, most of these new homeowners worked in construction trades, so they immediately invested in remodeling, unlike the absentee landlords of those homes before, which built home value in another. But the advantages, as I said, weren't just to these other families because Kurt says that he and his family, as a result, have finally been able to build community on their street with their neighbors where previously, when the homes were rentals, there was tremendous turnover, new families moving in every six to eight months. Kurt did all of this because he's a Christian. This is what he reads the Bible as saying he should do. And what Kurt has done with his neighbors is a glimpse of the kingdom of God in our midst, or at least in Kansas City, Kansas's midst. Others were blessed, and he was blessed to bless them. But for Kurt to have the attitude toward his own capital necessary for him to even Think about doing this, contemplate it, let alone to actually carry out. That is a real miracle, right? That is a work of God in Kurt's life. Even though it's the precise attitude that Scripture teaches us to have toward money, it is rare in a capitalistic society like ours for Christians to have such a godly view toward money. In fact, capitalism has trained most of us to separate what we do with our money from our faith entirely. Even within the Christian realm, though, guys like Dave Ramsey, when they talk about financial peace, they talk about creating financial peace for ourselves without regard for anybody else. 
But Kurt notes that when the Old Testament prophets talked about financial peace, they talked about it being when, quote, everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. Kurt observes that the Bible defines wealth very differently than Americans tend to. It's not what's in our savings accounts, but as being a defines wealth as being a member of a community where everybody has enough and is, and is as financially resilient as we are. You don't see that on CNBC. <laughs> so while Kurt may not have as big a number in his bank account as he could or as others may have, he's enormously, enormously wealthier than those who may have more who've been living by that wealth paradigm of the empire that's ultimately fool's gold. Now, it would be hard not to admire what Kurt's done with what God's given him. Although there are certainly plenty of us who don't have the capital sitting in a bank to help a renter buy a house, even if we lived in a situation where you could get a house for $20,000. You can barely get a dog house for $20,000 around here. My point, though, isn't that we should all go do exactly what Kurt has done, okay? But it's, it's how shocking and alien, just hearing what Kurt has done, how shocking and alien that probably is to all of us, that should be a reminder of how truly limited our grasp and perspective of the kingdom of God in its ways really is. That it's just mind-blowing. Shows how far each of us have to go, right? Not just financially, but in all sorts of ways. Other sorts of opportunities that we surely have had to impact our neighbors, those in our community for Christ, that we're blind to, that we don't even imagine. Ways to relate to people with emotional health and godly boundaries that aren't even, we can't even contemplate. We've just done it a certain way for so long. Being able to engage politics in a truly godly way. These are kingdom ways that so often elude us or are particular blind spots for us as American Christians. Even if we've been following Jesus for our whole lives, the blind spots in our vision for the kingdom are still going to be at like glaucoma levels. Do you believe that? Do you agree with that? That our blind spots for God's kingdom are at glaucoma levels. I think believing that, accepting that truth is a great start toward doing something for the kingdom. The good news is that so long as we nurture a desire for more of God's kingdom in our lives and remember that our vision for that kingdom remains incomplete at glaucoma levels, we can be confident Jesus will continue to guide us mercifully into more of his kingdom truths, which will enable us to live more of his kingdom life. We all suffer spiritual glaucoma in some significant ways just by virtue of being sinful human beings. It's just the way it is. In this morning's gospel passage from Luke chapter 4, we can see just how devastating the effects of spiritual glaucoma can be. How the kingdom of God can be staring you right in the face. And yet, we can still be unable to enter in or even recognize that it's there or that we're missing out. It can be right there like it was. 
in this passage. In the beginning of the passage, it explains Jesus has recently returned from his temptation in the desert, this very early in his public ministry. He'd been teaching throughout the region of Galilee, where word about him had spread like wildfire. But he's now, in Luke chapter 4, come to the small town of Nazareth, the town where he had grown up, which had a population at the time of just a few hundred. So everybody there would have known him, right? Not just known him, known him for years, right? Remember when he was a kid. On the Sabbath, he goes to the synagogue where he begins to read from Isaiah. Now, it's unclear whether Jesus had been scheduled to be the lector that day or whether he had just seized the floor for himself. But he reads from Isaiah chapters 58 and 61. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, everybody there would have known that passage, right? They didn't have TVs and stuff, so everybody, all they knew was Scripture, right? That was like all they did was go to synagogue and work, right? Everybody knew this passage, and likely everybody associated it with the coming Messiah. But it's what Jesus does after he reads the passage itself that's remarkable. He doesn't say the word of the Lord like our lectors do. No, verse 20 says he rolls up the scroll, he gives it back to the attendant, he sits down, and with the eyes of everybody in the synagogue fixed on him, he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, in me. Already, with the reports of the miracles Jesus had been performing, there had been rumors he might be the Messiah. But now, with Jesus saying this, I mean, he was leaving little doubt. And initially, the people's reaction is great excitement. Verse 22 says, quote, All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. And they asked, Isn't this Joseph's son? Positively, right? Isn't this Joseph's son? But as we heard Father Jim read for us a few minutes ago, their reaction to Jesus that begins positive will take a very dramatic, precipitous turn over the next six verses, right? From positive to extremely negative. Why? Well, the people of Nazareth are initially thrilled at the notion that Jesus is the Messiah, thrilled at it because they think their little town is about to be put on the map. Remember, for centuries now, the Jewish expectation for God's promised Messiah was that he'd be this political savior who'd overthrow Rome and the onerous taxes of the Romans and usher in a time of great material prosperity for God's people. Wow, for that Messiah to come from our piddly old little town, right, of Nazareth, He'd be the pride of Nazareth forever. It'd be, like, it'd be like if the 49ers had a quarterback who was a local boy from around here who took them all the way to the Super Bowl. Great pride. But then Jesus begins to say some things they don't like too much. And they'll end up wanting to throw him off a cliff. Well, before we get to the cliff, 
Let me explain how, how even a close reading of this passage Jesus quoted from Isaiah would reveal that his mission was actually quite different from what these people had come to expect over the centuries. Verse 18, Jesus quotes from Isaiah, He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. But as Joel Green, a scholar, explains it, the poor in Isaiah in that time referred to a lot broader category than just those who had little money. In that culture, the poor was anyone who had a low socio-religious status, right? So it could be for all sorts of reasons. It could be for financial reasons, but it could be for reasons of low education. It could be for reasons of gender, right? The way women were viewed in those days. It could be for reasons of family heritage, right? A bad genealogy um, could make someone have low status. Religious purity, right? Uh, Their vocation, if they're a tax collector or the prostitute, right? All sorts of things could give people a low status in society. So a better word for us to capture this sense Isaiah is talking about might be the word lowly. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the lowly. Isaiah was prophesying that the Messiah would bring the lowly in and give them status, give them equal standing, not just before man, but before God. It's good news. The next line, proclaim freedom for the prisoners, as well as two lines below that, to set the oppressed free. Those are meant to be good news for anybody who has been restrained from the life God intended for them. So, yes, obviously literal prisoners, but also spiritual prisoners. Anyone who has been hindered by sin in their lives, holding them back from what God wants, hindered by Satan. Then finally, recovery of the sight to the blind there in the middle of verse 18. That, of course, foreshadows when Jesus would heal people of physical blindness. But remember, the promise of those physical healings and the healings themselves, those were meant to point to Jesus being a prophet to us, giving us spiritual sight to our spiritual glaucoma, right, to our spiritual blindness, granting us revolution, revelation excuse me, of the truths of his kingdom to correct our spiritual blindness that we have from the fallen kingdoms we've been influenced by. So that's what Jesus is getting at, or that's what Isaiah was getting at, and what Jesus is saying is fulfilled in him that was completely lost on these people. But in light of those, the important questions for us, for us, you and me today, are, first of all, do we recognize our own lowliness? Do we believe there must remain ways that we are spiritually imprisoned and blind, even if we don't recognize it? Do we believe that? And second, do we want Jesus to do something about it? Do we want him to bring more of his kingdom among us and in our lives and through our lives? Because all God needs from us is our answer to those questions to be yes. For us to believe, that, to be humble about our own understanding and our limited perspective, that it's fallen and broken, and for us to want more of God's truth and kingdom in our lives. The good news is so long as we nurture that, and that desire for his kingdom, we can be confident Jesus will continue guiding us into more of his kingdom truth which will enable us to enter even more of his kingdom life. But unfortunately, for the people of Nazareth, their answer to those questions was no. 
they weren't actually interested in what that Isaiah passage is really about. They had no interest in a prophet, right? in Jesus, who is at least a prophet, of course, but in Jesus correcting their worldview, their interpretation of reality. And as a consequence, Jesus would be unable to do a thing for them. Nothing for them or through them. Right? That pride and insistence to holding on to everything tightly, they believed, prevented him from being able to do squat. Well, look at verse 23. He says, surely you will quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. And you'll tell me, do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. This saying, physician, heal yourself, it was popular in the first century. What it meant was, do something for your own, doctor, right? Heal your own people, right? They were saying, if you're doing all this stuff for all these other places, now you're in hometown, you're really going to do something for us, right? He knows that they must believe that as, as people from his hometown, they should be in line to benefit the most. But Jesus says he can't and he won't because they don't actually want what he has to offer. Right? They want him to meet their expectations and to be their little mascot. They don't want his prophecy. They don't want his truth. Thus he laments, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. So he's already demonstrated that his identity is much greater than just Joseph's son, who they call him, that he's at least a prophet. He's done that just by reading their thoughts in verse 23. He's reading their thoughts. Then in verse 25, he begins trying to correct their expectation for what God intends, that God intends to, to especially, um, that their expectation is God is, is going to especially bless them at the exclusion of others, right? And he's saying, no, 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 God wants to bless all people, in particular the lowly, in particular those who know they need a doctor, as he'll say elsewhere. What's significant about these stories that he reviews from the Old Testament the miracle Elijah did for the widow and that Elisha did for Naaman, is that in both those cases, the miracles were to outsiders, right? Neither were Jewish. One was a Gentile woman widow, pretty lowly in that, that day and age. The other was foreign military, right? A threat, also a Gentile, and a leper, right? Out, which wouldn't even be allowed in the temple, right? Or synagogue. So Jesus is teaching them about his kingdom, that it will be about blessing and valuing all people, not just them, and that receiving it will depend on their willingness to let Jesus challenge their wrong assumptions and narratives, even about Scripture, even the ones, right? They had a belief about this Isaiah passage, right? They probably would have quoted that passage to people. It's just they didn't actually understand what it means, or they'd taken it out of context, or they'd insert their own meaning into it, their own wish dream into it. It was nothing about what God wanted which we are certainly, right, vulnerable to. So there right before these people is an invitation to receive the kingdom of God, to follow Jesus into it. But it will require them to reconsider assumptions they've held their whole lives. Assumptions that have been passed down to them from their parents. Assumptions that were based on really powerful experiences they had and how they interpreted them. 
and they're unwilling to let go. They're not willing. They don't want a prophet. They don't want God's kingdom if it's going to cost them something. They don't care about outsiders being blessed. They want to be blessed, right? And they adore the privilege of of feeling like insiders with God. So needless to say, they don't like his talk of these outsider miracles. Verse 28 says, all the people in the synagogue were furious. They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff, which is actually how you begin to stone somebody, they believe. But Jesus walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Friends, if we aren't interested in more of God's kingdom in our lives, Rest assured, Jesus will walk on by to those who do, to those who are interested. But so long as we do nurture a desire for more of God's kingdom in our lives, and remember that our vision for that kingdom remains incomplete, we can be confident that Jesus will continue guiding us into more of his kingdom truth, which will enable us to enter into more of his kingdom life. For all of us, having lived many decades in this world, it's hard not to be hardened in most all of our opinions and views of the world. And yet believing in Jesus, being a Christian in the biblical sense, means maintaining a humility about our own perspectives. It means that we covet prophecy. We covet God correcting us and speaking to us through whatever means he chooses. Doesn't have to be miraculous, right? Because it means we might enter more into more of his truth. We covet that. Do you covet God speaking to you his truth? Or would you rather him just kind of let you ride your days out? That's the choice before each of us. So what do we, for example, what do we come to church for? or tune in for if we're on Zoom? Is it for the experiences alone? Is it because it feels good for inspiring music, for the social socializing? Or, or do we come to church with the hope of hearing from God, which, again, doesn't have to be charismatic. I mean, we're not a really charismatic church, right? What I'm talking about is God may speak to us and prick our hearts through a song. God may speak to us through his word being read. God may speak to us through a sermon. But he may also speak to us through having a conversation with another believer that goes beyond the weather and the Niners, right? But do we even desire that? Are we even on the lookout for it? So believing in Jesus means we welcome his prophecy to align our vision more with his kingdom, to cure some of our spiritual glaucoma, but also, finally, that we surrender our futures to him. As we imagine what our futures, the rest of our years on this earth, our days on this earth, look like, what are we imagining and hoping for? Is it that it would be more like God's kingdom 
than our lives are right now? How much possibility do we allow for God to lead us into? You know, in our Old Testament reading today, the Lord comes to Jeremiah. It's the story of God calling him initially. And when he does that, God calls Jeremiah to do something that, that Jeremiah had never imagined for himself, ever. And in his response, he's like, what are you talking about? Like, I can't talk, blah, 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 right? Now, the point isn't that God's going to call us all to be Jeremiah's, right? It's not so much that particular role God called him to, which was a prophet, right? It's the fact that Jeremiah never had any plans to serve God in that way. He had no imagination for it whatsoever. Are we willing to submit what we imagine for our own futures to God and say, not my will, but your will be done? Yeah, if I had to bet this is what the rest of my life might look like, but you know what? I bet you can write a better story, Jesus. It's this sort of openness that God desires us to have. If we're willing to be that open, to say that to God, not my will, but your will. What God wants to do in us and through us, it may look, Nothing like what he's doing through Kurt in Kansas City. But it will be similar to what he's doing with Kurt and that it will be about building his kingdom and not building our own kingdom. The good news is that so long as we nurture a desire for more of God's kingdom in our lives and remember that our vision for that remains very incomplete, we can be confident Jesus will continue guiding us into more of his kingdom truth, which will enable us to live into even more of his kingdom life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This time I want to invite you, let's respond. Uh, as Annette begins to play, Here I Am, please stand.